We are rolling. So here's how the system works. It is a single winner voting system. You are given a ballot and you are supposed to score the candidates on the ballot. I don't like the idea of changing to a voting system that is going to ask our citizens to be even more informed and engaged. I think that any prospective voting system to have a real chance of being adopted needs to be understood by the voting population. I am concerned that Americans might rebel against something just because it's different. I think that there is a simple intuitive argument you can make on behalf of the system that gives it legitimacy. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Zane Emerson. And I'm your host, Jack Miller. This week, we're going to do something that we've never really done before. That's right. This is going to be the first episode ever that I will have led and we are going to focus on one of my favorite political subjects, voting systems. Voting systems. So I'm going to present Jack with a voting system that I have researched, and we are going to discuss what we think about it. Uh, What are its pros? What are its cons? How can we see it implemented? Could we see it actually being used in re-elections? All that stuff. That sounds good. Now, I will jump in here and say that Zane has been fascinated with voting systems for a really long time, We've had discussions like this before, but I'm doing this blind. I don't know what Zane is going to present, and we are going to have a real-time conversation about this idea that he presents. So this is something we've done before, but this particular thing is something we have never done before. I know. I'm super excited, too. I'm really ready to get going. Let's go. So this week, I had a couple of voting systems to choose from, and today I thought we'd start with a very interesting one called STAR voting. STAR voting. Now, STAR is an acronym for Score Then Automatic Runoff, describing how a system works. It was actually invented in Oregon. It was actually like developed by people who met, I think, in Lane County. So this is an Oregon-bred voting system. And Oregon is historically a politically innovative state. Uh, we introduced to the United States direct democracy, and direct democracy is sometimes in the United States referred to as the Oregon system. We were the first state to have referendum, initiative, and recall systems. So here's how the system works. It is a single winner voting system. You are given a ballot, and you are supposed to score the candidates on the ballot from zero to five. Zero being you hate the candidate, five is you love the candidate. They are sometimes called stars, like zero to five stars, which is also where it gets the name of star voting. So it's kind of a dual meaning. 
double meaning. The acronym stands for score then automatic runoff. Yes, correct. And then also you're giving it stars like regular stars, like you would rate a movie or a restaurant or a Yelp review. Exactly. And so they recommend on the website putting your favorite candidate at five stars, your least favorite candidate at zero stars, and then starring everyone else accordingly. So you could give the same number of stars to two different candidates, correct? Correct. You can give whatever you want to whoever you want. You can give the same score to multiple candidates. You can even give five stars to multiple candidates. And so what happens is after all the ballots have been voted on, you take the ballot and you add that score to a candidate's running total. So you basically add up the score of a candidate from all their ballots. And what I've so far described is something called cardinal voting or scoring voting, which is another sort of category of voting system where whoever has the highest score is the winner. Where star is different is in the fact that after all the candidates are scored, you take the top two highest scoring candidates and you bring them to an automatic runoff. That's where the star voting gets the second half of its name. You take the two candidates and you take a new look at the same ballots and you see which of the two candidates they scored highest on their ballot. So let's say that we have a hypothetical ballot where there's three candidates, Albert, Bert, and Charlie. Bert and Charlie are in the runoff. Let's say that this particular voter scored Albert as five stars, Bert at three stars, and Charlie at one star. They would cast a single vote to Bert because they scored Bert higher. You keep doing that for every single one of the ballots. If there's a tie between preferences, it gets counted as a no preference ballot. And then at the end, whichever candidate has the most votes after this runoff is crowned the single winner. One of the reasons that the star people say their voting system is great is because more than a lot of systems de-incentivizes strategic voting, which is obviously a pretty big problem that plagues our current first-past-the-post electoral system. Because if you just had the straight scoring voting, it would make the most sense just to give five stars to your favorite and zero stars to everybody. But because there's this runoff, it encourages you to score more candidates so your vote can be counted in the runoff to get you your better preference. Right. And so if you do score your one favorite candidate five and everyone else zero or one, you're likely to not matter in the runoff stage. Exactly. In fact, if you do rate everyone five and everyone else zero, and then your favorite candidate doesn't win, you do not matter at all because you've indicated with your ballot that you don't care, even though maybe in your heart of hearts you did. So that's why it's worth it to score every candidate if there's a level of preference. Right. And so if I have a very favorite candidate, and then a distant second, and then the rest I just can't imagine even ever seeing their face in a government position, <laughs> then I can give like a five and a two, and I'm likely to do that. Uh, because if, if my top, top choice does get there in the runoff, I will want that person to get a lot of points. Or actually, they won't. It doesn't the, the runoff stage doesn't have points anymore. It just has votes. Correct. So the runoff stage becomes much like a classic uh, winner take all, or as you say in the very British way, first past the post uh, <laughs> style of election that we are familiar with. Yes. So that is actually one thing that's nice about it. And now the star people, as you say, tout this over preference voting. Why again? So one of the things they say is that with rank choice voting or preference voting, you can't express the sort of level of support. So for example, if you rank someone one and someone two, you could like those two pretty closely or you could really love the one and like the two is like a distant second. So scoring allows not just to show the ranking of the candidates, but like the strength of support among the candidates, which I think is a pretty great advantage. One of the things that I've often said I have a problem with preference voting 
not me personally, but with use in the American political culture, is that it's asking a lot of voters to align four candidates or five candidates in order of preference. And it's an unfamiliar thing. We don't tend to spend a lot of our lives taking a set of things and putting them in a preference order, but we do spend an awful lot of our lives ranking things by stars. I mean, we do it on Amazon, we do it on Yelp, we do it all over the place. Not only are we familiar with it, but it's, it is asking not a ton of a voter to say, okay, here's the five candidates. And you know, a voter could say, you know, I only know about three of these five. And so the two I don't know about, I'm just going to give them zero stars. That's easy. And in fact, you may not even have to tell people that. They will just do that automatically. I do see the benefit of the star system over the preference ranking just in terms of voter input of energy. And I am often wary of electoral reforms that ask more of our voters than our current system is already asking because we already have low turnout rates. We already have low information voters. I don't like the idea of changing to a voting system that is going to ask our citizens to be even more informed and engaged. And this one doesn't really do that, in my opinion. The the way that you've described it, I can see voters actually putting in maybe marginally more effort or possibly not even any more effort because you're like, yeah, I like this person, five stars. That other person, two stars, and the rest of them I don't know about. That I think could be a common pattern. Absolutely. I think that the ease of this system is pretty apparent. I explained to you in maybe a couple minutes, I think that any prospective voting system to have a real chance of being adopted needs to be understood by the voting population or else it's a not a good voting system to use. Absolutely. And as I say, I think it needs to not ask more of our already beleaguered electorate to spend more time, more energy, more thought on their vote. I would say that on that criteria, Star Voting does very well. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. What are the other reasons why you think this is a good system? Well, I think the obvious benefit is greater diversity of candidates. This score voting will encourage more candidates because it eliminates the strategic voting and the vote splitting problems. They're a big problem with first past the post and a big reason why we have two major parties. And if we adopted the star voting system, it would encourage and make more fair elections with multiple candidates in them, more than just two. Now, one question I have for you is, has the star system been used anywhere in the world so that we can have empirical evidence that in fact does encourage non-major party candidates to run and gives them a chance to win? It encourages greater diversity. It's actually uh, something that results in voters feeling like the winners are legitimate and represent the will of the people? Or is this still speculative? I figured you're going to ask that question. So I looked it up. It's also on the Star website. Here are the examples I found. It was used in the 2020 Oregon Independent Party primary. So using like an actual election with real candidates. By a party, 
which is an interesting choice as opposed to by an electoral system yes. to choose the winner. But that's, actually, so that's good. I actually think a primary is the perfect place to use this kind of system because there's naturally many different candidates. And so a system that makes the picking of those candidates more fair I think is really great. And that right there actually gets at one of the other criteria that I would have is not just will the voters be able to handle this reform, but will this reform have a chance to be selected by the people who are already winning under the current system? Because they're the ones who have a say over how our systems go. What's interesting is that from the point of view of party leaders, they want the strongest candidate in the general election possible. They want the one that's most likely to win. I could see party leaders actually saying to themselves, this system for primaries is going to result in a vigorous competition. It's going to result in the nominee of our party being broadly favorable to our party base. It's going to therefore be a good system to use to pick our candidate who's going to then run in the dominant first-past-the-post, winner-take-all, two-party system that we have for selecting the winner of the office. I could see it getting a toehold, not just among, you know, the independent party or the Green Party or whatever third parties are not going to win the general election. But the Democratic and the Republican parties, especially now when primary challenges are so problematic for party leaders who worry that the more extreme candidates are going to win in these primaries, and then it's going to give them an unelectable candidate for the general election. That's always a concern historically for party leaders. I think it's an extremely central concern to them now because it has actually been happening. It's not speculative anymore that extremists from your either far left or far right wing of your party are going to win primaries and then lose general elections. So I could see the political plausibility of this being that party leaders start experimenting with this in certain states, like the Democratic or Republican Party of Oregon could start using this and it wouldn't destroy their political chances. In fact, it might enhance their political chances. And in fact, in the Democratic Party in Oregon already has started using this in a few special ways. So in 2020, the Democrats used the system to pick their delegates for the Democratic Convention. And the Multnomah County Democrats are using this for all their internal elections. So this is already being used by a major party, albeit not in like an electoral way but in a significant way, picking delegates and internal elections. Well, that's, and that is actually, I would say, um, it shows that there's curiosity and interest in this voting system. Internal elections like this are great test markets to see whether this voting system in reality works out as well as it does on paper. That's one of the things I think that gets people to resist reforms or innovations is they're worried that it's going to actually not have the effects or the impact, the positive uh, outcome that it does in theory. And so there's this test marketing. And I'm, I'm glad to hear actually that so, that a major party is test marketing this. If it's working well in these sort of internal type elections, it doesn't seem too crazy to think that they're going to start using it in primaries. And if it works out in primaries and voters like it and the nominees go on and do pretty well in the general elections, that's how innovations spread in our political culture by essentially starting small and local and working. Absolutely. And I actually think this system would work super well for local elections like city council elections or school board elections or mayor elections because often party allegiance isn't as important as it is at the national level. State politics are a little bit strange. Local politics can be a bit 
wonky and different as well. They don't always follow the national formula. And so I think this system would work super well for those kinds of elections where party identity is less important and sort of the candidates in general are more important, like in very local elections. My only last concern when looking at any kind of particularly electoral reform is the legitimacy question. I mentioned this a little earlier. Will the use of a system that's this unfamiliar to Americans, will it come with the same sense of, okay, the winner is the winner that our current system does. And, you know, you could say, well, first past the post, winner take all. People win frequently with far less than 50%. So how does it have legitimacy? In theory, our current system probably shouldn't have the level of legitimacy it does relative to other electoral systems. But the fact is, it does because it's what's the most familiar. I am sometimes reluctant to accept an innovation, not because it's not good on paper and not because it actually doesn't work in practice, but because the population has to accept it as legitimate. My only concern with this particular one is, will Americans be able to look at this and say, yeah, you know, this actually produces a winner that is the winner. The system we have right now is the simplest kind of scorekeeping possible. You count up the votes and whoever has the most is the winner. That is very intuitively pleasing and therefore it brings with it a kind of powerful form of legitimacy. This is a two-phase system where there's stars and then those stars are converted into a preference rank in the second round and the person who wins has passed through both of these levels. That's potentially confusing enough to the electorate that they could look at the winner and be like, well, you know, I don't know anybody who gave that person any stars whatsoever. How the hell did they win? Right. And then you could get out all the information, show them. But at the point at which you're, you're, you're publishing spreadsheets and uh, explaining things and their complexity, that's when you've already probably lost the legitimacy battle. I agree. I think that there is a simple intuitive argument you can make on behalf of the system that gives it legitimacy. The scoring measures sort of the strength of support. And I think it'll be easy for people to grasp the fact that if a candidate scores highly, that means lots of people scored them highly on their ballots, which means that they deserve to be high scored. I also think the runoff gives it more legitimacy. One of the things people don't like about preference voting, or one of the reasons they think it's not fair, is because when they see the instant runoff method where votes are redistributed, they might see it as like votes being counted more than once or like why are these votes moved around but my votes are not moved around. Since there is no that in star voting, it's easy to see like, oh, my votes counted once for the scoring here and then every vote's counted once again for this new thing here. So I think it's sort of easier to intuit why it's fair. I get that the preference voting actually does create a lot of potential confusion because there could be a lot of rounds of elimination depending on what your preference elimination style is. Like if you have five candidates, some systems eliminate the lowest and rejigger the votes based on that for the top four and then they eliminate the bottom one. That actually can seem a little squirrely for sure. And this one automatically has two levels and it does, you know, I agree that it also does speak intuitively to people the power of support. I guess if I were now thinking from the perspective of somebody trying to convince voters to accept this, the analogy might have to shift from your giving your vote to a candidate to you are a judge, much like, say, gymnastics judges or diving judges are judges who are scoring. The reason why I would want to present some kind of appealing analogy is because it is an unfamiliar thing, even though we do it all the time, we 
give stars on Yelp and on Amazon and all, the, all of these places, I think that it would be helpful for voters to, to say, oh, okay, I'm doing something that is, in fact, familiar to me. I see people judged all the time. And I know that sometimes when I'm watching the Olympics and that one gymnast gets a really high score and a really low score and doesn't win, it's because that all makes sense. Judges will disagree with each other about what the score is. And for me, I would want to make sure, if I were an advocate of this, that people could have some kind of simple, intuitive analogy to be able to say, oh, that's what I'm doing when I'm a voter. Because right now, the simple intuitive analogy is probably not the best one, but it's, it, it speaks to people, which is I am giving my vote to somebody. What I expect back from them is if they win to advance my interests. Asking people to be judges might actually change our whole political culture or at least transform how people look at, the, at elected officials. Not as, well, I voted for you and you won, and now you're not giving me the stuff that you promised to give me. I gave you my vote. Where's my stuff back, right? And there is a lot of discontent when that happens to say, well, you're not, you're not exchanging your vote for policy outcomes. You are making a judgment of the fitness of these different people to make these policy decisions. That could change the perspective that voters have on outcomes one of the problems, I think, with our current system is that people get dissatisfied very, very easily. They vote for somebody because they think they're going to give them uh, all this stuff. This is particularly true at the presidential level, but I think it happens at all levels. And then that person wins, takes office, and they don't get the stuff that they were promised on the campaign trail. And they're like, but I did my part. I gave you my vote. Why aren't you giving me my stuff, my policy outcomes that I want? And they get discouraged, and they either stay home the next time, which is a common reason why presidents do poorly in the first midterm election after they win is that a lot of the people that voted for them go, well, I voted for you and now my life's not a whole lot better. And what did you do for me? So I'm just not even going to vote for you next time. I'm not going to vote for the people in your party. So I, I like the idea that by shifting the perspective of the voter from giver of the vote in exchange, hoped exchange for some outcome that they get if that person wins, to you're a judge judging the fitness of this person to make laws and policies. And I actually don't think it even requires that radical of a shift in thought because there still is this idea of like, oh, this person has policies I really like, I'll vote for them. This person has policies or ideas I kind of like, but kind of disagree with, I'll give them three stars. This person has ideas I hate, I'll give them zero stars. We don't need to abandon this idea of giving a vote means I like your policy, you'll do something for me. I think that's still a way people can think about it, combined with, like you said, I like that idea of being a judge and like scoring them based on how well you think they'll do and how good you think they are. Yeah, and you can imagine people with all kinds of different ways of deciding how to give their stars. Some people might just say, you know, I'm going to give them stars based on how trustworthy they seem. Other people might say, well, I'm going to combine trustworthiness with party label, with policy preferences. I might, you know, the, the Democrat, I, you know, typically I'm going to give the Democrat four stars. And then if somebody who's a liberal non-Democrat is running, I might give them five stars because they stand for all the same stuff the Democrat does, but I think that they're actually intelligent or charismatic or going to be a person who stirs things up. So I could I could combine my mo my evaluations of the candidates as policy, party, character, experience, and that that is actually while that of course is available to voters right now by essentially saying you can only pick one person. 
that tends to flatten our evaluation by being like, okay, well, which ultimately is the lesser of the evils? That, that is a common way that we hear that voters give their vote is the lesser of the evils. And this actually, I've always hated having to feel like I'm giving my vote to the lesser of two evils. And this one would mitigate that feeling for a lot of people, I think. Hopefully it would anyway. I can't guarantee it, but hopefully it would. Exactly. One of the things they say on the STAR website is that it promotes voter expressiveness, which I think is exactly what you're trying to get at, which is that it allows voters to be much more expressive about their preferences, which I think will work to boost voter turnout. I think that the problem with the check one option is people like, I can't express how I really feel. With star voting, I think that's a major advantage that provides a lot more range of voting. So there's more expressiveness. And I like you said, there's more room for your factors that influence your vote to be represented on your ballot. This has been a really good exploration of this system. I have a feeling that you and I could talk about this for the rest of the night for hours and hours, but we will cut off our discussion here for our listeners. Before we go, what's the summary of what you think about this voting system? Great question. On balance, I am cautiously optimistic, which is about as good as it gets for me for a political reform. And again, I'm cautiously optimistic instead of highly enthusiastic because I do have some concerns about the legitimacy question. I think that this is a system that people could learn to operate very easily without increasing their energy or thought or action, which is always very concerning to me. You can't ask more voters. I'm always very wary of reforms that would go against the interests of established political elites who could easily block it, not because that means it's a bad reform, but because it's just not going to happen. And I'm not going to put excitement and energy behind something that has no political reality. So I think on those first two counts, good score. The legitimacy question, I'm not going to give it a bad score, but I am concerned that Americans might rebel against something just because it's different. It will be an effort to essentially market this effectively so that people can make the transition from what we're currently used to, which is giving our one vote to one candidate, to the idea that they are a judge who's ranking them. And that is a little more complex, though not tremendously more complex. But it mostly also could just create a system where people are like, but but who, but why did that person win again? That's my only real concern. I don't actually think it's a huge concern, but it is a concern. That said, I think that we now probably can just do our wrap-up business here for episode 31, second episode of year three of the Pothole Problem podcast. So what do we have for wrap-up business? I'd like to once again urge our listeners to send us an email. I would really like to have a listener email episode in the future. The email is jack.miller at pdx.edu. If you want to send us an email about this episode or any episode at all, or really just send us an email about whatever you want to, send it to that email, and um, hopefully we can have a listener email episode in the future. I want to also announce a new feature of the Pothole Problem. I'm going to be doing solo, not co-hosted with Zane, solo a weekly politics Q&A session every Wednesday night from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. And I'm going to start the first one on October 6th, and it will be every Wednesday for the 10 weeks of the term. You can go to potholeproblempodcast.com, click on the politics Q&A link and get more information about this. This is a new feature. Uh, And it's a response from people who would like to be able to, in real time, have their political concerns and questions answered. And it will be a Zoom meeting. 
and I hope that people will be excited about it. Sounds great. And we're going to end this episode with a clip from the 1976 Democratic National Convention keynote speech given by the first African-American woman to give a major party keynote speech, Barbara Jordan. I'm your co-host, Jack Miller. I'm your co-host, Zane Emerson. Thanks for listening. My presence here is one additional bit of evidence that the American dream need not forever be deferred. Now, now that I have this grand distinction, what in the world am I supposed to say? I could easily spend this time praising the accomplishments of this party and attacking the Republicans, but I don't choose to do that. I could list the many problems which Americans have. I could list the problems which cause people to feel cynical, angry, frustrated. Problems which include lack of integrity in government, the feeling that the individual no longer counts, the reality of material and spiritual poverty, the feeling that the grand American experiment is failing or has failed. I could recite these problems and then I could sit down and offer no solutions, but I don't choose to do that either. The citizens of America expect more they deserve and they want more than a recital of problems. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. <laughs>